Welcome to the Educator Podcast, Walking History, where we explore the history around us by actually walking it. I'm your host, Matt Douglas, longtime educator, former history teacher, and life coach for teens and young adults. In today's episode, we visit the Battle of Yorktown, the final and most important battle of the American Revolution, the battle that wins the war and eventually gives independence to the United States of America. After a brief summary of the events at Yorktown and some all-important interesting facts, we do a deep dive into the background of the battle, talk about the chess game that Washington was playing with the British, and then get into the battle itself, and finally end by talking about what it's like to visit this incredible battlefield, which I toured last week. So, listen through to the whole episode or check the show notes to jump to a specific section that might interest you. If you like this episode and want to see more like it, please rate, review, subscribe, and share. It really helps support the show. And to find more information and episodes, visit theeducatorpodcast.com or your favorite podcast app. For more information on me and my work, please visit lifecoachingsd.com or follow me at lifecoachingsd on Instagram. All right, let's get into it. All right. Welcome, everybody. So today we are talking about the Battle of Yorktown, also known as the Siege of Yorktown or the German Battle or the Surrender at Yorktown. There's always different names for it. We will refer to it as the Battle of Yorktown, and it is absolutely the most important battle of the Revolutionary War. It is the battle that leads to basically the independence of the United States. Now, we're going to get into this battle in a lot of detail. We're going to give a summary some interesting facts, then a pretty deep background story of what's happening before the battle, before we get to the battle itself, and then talk about the aftermath and, since this is walking history, what it's like to visit there today. Now, feel free to skip straight ahead of the battle if you'd like, but the background that I'm going to give I think is very important because it gives a lot of context into how this happened. Now, the Battle of Yorktown really wasn't even that much of a battle, hence why it's sometimes called the Siege of Yorktown. It is more the result of these incredibly important chess moves that are made by George Washington, the French allies, the Marquis de Lafayette, as they're slowly closing in on Cornwallis' forces in Virginia. And it's those chess moves that play out that create a situation, basically, that is almost certainly going to result in defeat for the British forces and a huge victory for Washington and the American forces. So the background here is going to be very important. And I kind of imagine almost like a chess game playing out slowly but surely as the king, in this case Cornwallis, gets trapped and eventually is forced to concede, which is really kind of what happens here. So the show notes will describe the times that you can jump to if you want to jump straight to the battle or to the walking history portion at the end. But suffice to say, it's a very interesting experience kind of learning about this battle and visiting the location. When you go to Yorktown today, it's this beautiful little town. It's very historic. Many of the buildings that exist there have been there for hundreds of years. It's like a colonial town. And it was a very important town even before the Revolution War took place. When you visit the battlefield itself, it's quite large, and you can still see all these siege lines and trenches that were built still there today, built almost 250 years ago. It kind of felt like visiting a World War I battlefield. It's like trench line after trench line, and as we get into the actual battle itself, you'll see why it was that way. But anyway, the Battle of Yorktown is pretty fascinating obviously incredibly famous, and it is the final battle of the Revolutionary War. It is the battle that secures independence for the Americans. Before this battle, it was kind of touch and go. It seemed like the Americans might have the upper hand, but it easily could have gone the other way quite quickly. All right, so let's get into it. Let's start with our summary. The Battle of Yorktown, also known as the Siege of Yorktown, was the final and most important battle of the Revolutionary War, resulting in the complete surrender of the British forces under General Lord Cornwallis to General George Washington, and eventually leading to the full British surrender and independence for the United States. 
Culminating on October 19, 1781, the battle pitted a combined force of about 17,000 American and French troops against just over 8,000 British. The British had been holed up in the port town of Yorktown, Virginia, near the Chesapeake Bay since the summer, but by October they found themselves trapped between a French fleet at sea and American and French troops by land. Without escape or reinforcement, the British forces were sitting ducks. By 1781, the American Revolution had reached its sixth year of fighting, with both sides tired, but momentum seemed to be on the side of the Americans. The French had allied with the Americans and were providing soldiers, supplies, and their powerful navy. The British had tried unsuccessfully for years to control the Mid-Atlantic and New England colonies. The Americans, of course, referred to them as states. And by 1781, their only force, though it was a large one, in the northern colonies was stationed in New York City. Washington's strategy of protracted fighting and avoiding large, pitched battles had worn down his enemy, and support for independence steadily grew throughout the United States, the new United States. But victory was far from certain. British forces, particularly those under General Cornwallis, were attacking throughout the South, and the British forces in New York City far outnumbered Washington's and could defeat or capture his army at any time. So still a fairly precarious situation for the American forces. The Americans, combined with the French, however, with a great deal of ingenuity and a little bit of luck, managed to corner and defeat Cornwallis's southern force. Oh God, it's all over, said British Prime Minister Lord North upon hearing the news of the defeat at Yorktown. And for all intents and purposes, it was. Although Washington and the rest of those fighting didn't know it yet, still afraid of the British force in New York. The British would not attack, however, and soon peace negotiations began, finally ending with the Treaty of Paris in 1783. It secured full independence for the fledgling United States, created the first democracy the world had seen since Rome, and proved that the world's most powerful countries and their monarchs could be challenged, overcome, and defeated. All right. Before we get into some more of the background here, let's give some interesting facts. Always love to start with some interesting facts. Really kind of brings it to life here. So, number one, the Battle of Yorktown is a who's who of famous figures of the Revolutionary War. Practically everyone who was anyone was there. Washington, Lafayette, Alexander Hamilton, Rochambeau, Baron von Steuben, Cornwallis, they are all part of this story. Number two, Yorktown was also the site of a civil war battle, and troops even used and reinforced the same trenches and fortifications that had built almost 100 years earlier during their fighting. If you visit today, you can see a Civil War cemetery sitting in the middle of the battlefield. Number three, General Charles Lord Cornwallis, claiming he was too sick to surrender in person, sent his second in command to surrender instead. I love that. I mean, that just tells you a lot right there. Number four, if you visit today, you can tour the site of the Surrender Field, where thousands of British troops laid down their arms in the grass and officially surrendered. Many of the captured cannons are even still there on display. And number five, the casualties for the battle, as we'll see, were incredibly low as the British surrender came before there was very much serious fighting. All right, so let's get into the background here. So basically, this is a story of the combined American and French forces, with a little bit of luck, slowly and successfully trapping General Cornwallis' forces like a cornered king on a chessboard. That's the image that sort of sticks into my head. Um, use that as you kind of imagine all this happening. So here's the background. Just a quick note here, I'm going to give a lot of troop strength numbers. Just know that these are general estimates. The numbers often vary by sources, uh, and they also were changing in real time due to disease and desertion and people being killed and wounded. Uh, accurate records often were not even kept. So if I give a number like 4,000, it easily could have been 3,000 or 5,000, but we just don't have exact numbers on a lot of these. We do have fairly exact numbers for the Battle of Yorktown itself, uh, but not too great for the lead-up. Okay, so the initial fighting of the Revolutionary War had started in 1775, and by the time of the Battle of Yorktown in October of 1781, it had been six years since fighting had begun. 
Both sides were tired, but it was fairly clear that Washington's strategy of mostly avoiding these pitched battles to extend the war favored the Americans, and the population in the colonies, or states, however you want to refer to it, over the years increasingly favored independence. The British really seemed at like a loss for how to conduct the war. It's like they didn't even really know what to do. You know, they had tried and failed to subdue these northern colonies. And by the time of the Battle of Yorktown, the only territory they even held in the north was New York City. Everywhere else was controlled by the Americans. Um, New York City they had held since the beginning of the war, and they just sort of held on to it, didn't let it go. Uh, But everywhere surrounding it was absolutely American territory. So if you're the British, like, what do you do? So their strategy was sort of one of necessity. If you can't attack in the north, if that hasn't worked, I guess you go south, right? So they then turned their sights down south to the southern colonies, these southern states, and Major General Sir Henry Clinton, who's safely stationed in New York City, he's leading all the British forces in North America, in the now United States, he sends his forces south in an attempt to take these colonies. Now, not only is it the only thing he really can do, but he also thinks that they're going to find a more sympathetic loyalist population there. That was kind of the general thinking of the time, although as the British will find out, that's really not the case. So they go south. In December of 1778, the British capture the coastal city of Savannah, Georgia. Uh, They temporarily take Charleston. And by the end of 1779, Clinton, who's now working very closely with General Charles Lord Cornwallis, sends a large force back to Charleston, South Carolina, and it is retaken in 1780. So now we kind of have like Clinton leading Cornwallis, Cornwallis in the south, trying to take over as much as he can. Clinton gives Cornwallis a force of about 3,000 men and gives like fairly vague instructions to sort of say, hey, listen, keep Savannah, uh, keep Charleston, and do whatever else you can. Like, take the Carolinas, take North and South Carolina. Hopefully you can eventually move into Virginia, and we're going to kind of rally the population and take over and, you know, take over these colonies from the South and work our way back up. That's the general idea. It's quite vague, and Cornwallis is going to find quite quickly it's not nearly as easy or as simple as any of them would have hoped. So Cornwallis has a really difficult time maintaining control and even really taking territory. He takes a lot of this territory in South Carolina, but the problem is that these colonies are huge, and he doesn't have that many troops, and it's pretty hard to command these populations and these areas with fairly few troops. He also lacks adequate supplies, he lacks money for his army, and the patriot resistance that he encounters is a lot stronger than he anticipates. So he's fairly successful in taking over land, but it's not really doing him all that good. Um, In August of 1780, he wins a fairly impressive battle against Horatio Gates at the Battle of Camden, which is in South Carolina. Uh, But there's some more defeats after that, and eventually Cornwallis moves his forces north into North Carolina. What's interesting here, he leaves into North Carolina, and within a few months, American forces under Nathaniel Greene retake most of the territory the British had taken in South Carolina. So it's like this like whack-a-mole game. The British are trying to like retake territory, but as soon as they move their forces, the Americans just come back. So it kind of gives you an idea of just how difficult this war had been and clearly was for the British to win. And the strategy of avoiding these big battles and losing a lot of troops, the, the strategy the Americans were employing, was working quite well. In May of 1781, Cornwallis then decides to move north into Virginia. Now, he does this for a few reasons. There's already some British forces there. Uh, Many of them are under the command of the famous turncoat, the infamous turncoat, Benedict Arnold, and also because a majority of the supplies for the American army in the south were coming for Virginia. So it's sort of two birds with one stone. Go meet up with your other forces, um, knock out these American supply lines, and, of course, if you get supplies, just use them for yourself. You know, Americans won't get the supplies, but the British force under Cornwallis can. Now, the only real American force in the area at the time was under the command of the Marquis de Lafayette. He was commanding about 3,000 American troops, and he had been in Virginia since March of 1781, harassing the British troops there. And now that Cornwallis had arrived, the British command numbers about 7,000 troops. So you kind of have like 7,000 British troops running around Virginia with about 3,000 American troops under Lafayette sort of following him and antagonizing him. 
Now, the two forces engage a few times, but Lafayette models his strategy off of Washington and avoids these large battles, and instead he kind of fights like a cat-and-mouse game with Cornwallis. And if you look at a map of, of where the two forces traveled, it's sort of this, like, squiggly line and a bunch of curly cues going all over Virginia. Uh, and this is as Lafayette is trying to stay away but stay close to Cornwallis's forces. Now, Cornwallis is still receiving fairly vague instructions from Clinton about what to do, and he's just kind of told to subdue Virginia, do your best. Finally, in the summer of 1781, Clinton gives Cornwallis fairly clear orders. He says, Cornwallis, bring your troops east to the Virginia Peninsula near where Williamsburg and Yorktown and Jamestown are and find a suitable fortified position along the coast that will allow safe harbor for our ships for the British fleet. Cornwallis says, okay, I have some clear orders. Like, finally, he marches east and he eventually decides that he wants to set his troops at the town of Yorktown. Yorktown is about 15 miles southeast of the important city of Williamsburg. At the time, it was actually the capital of Virginia, and it's about 60 miles southeast of Richmond. So it's in a general important area in Virginia. Let's talk about the geography for a second, because this is pretty important to know. You might want to pull up a map, or I'll put some in the show notes here. But just know that this area, the geography of it, plays a huge role in the Battle of Yorktown itself. So if you know anything about the Chesapeake Bay or Virginia or Maryland, it sort of looks like a bunch of fingers sticking out into the Chesapeake Bay that then follows into the Atlantic Ocean. The Chesapeake Bay kind of opens west and then north, um, and then there's all these tributaries and rivers that are sort of coming out of it. And so you create all these like fingers, these peninsulas that are sticking into this very large Chesapeake Bay. Now, one of those fingers is where Yorktown is, which is nearby Williamsburg, and as we said, Jamestown. So Yorktown is on the northern edge of what's called the Virginia Peninsula, um, and it's a pretty good port city, and it had been a port city for a very long time. By the early 1700s, it had been basically the major port serving Williamsburg, which, like we said at the time, was the capital of Virginia, so a pretty important place. And at its peak just before the Revolutionary War, it was a bustling coastal town. Almost 2,000 people lived there. It was full of wharfs and docks and taverns. And over 200 buildings were there, many of which are still there today. Just to the north was the large York River. To the south, if you crossed over the rest of the Virginia Peninsula, was the James River. And like we said, Williamsburg and Jamestown are quite close. Uh, today, this is called the Historic Triangle. It's a great like tourist destination. You can spend the day in Yorktown, day in Williamsburg, day in Jamestown. Just kind of endless historical things to do. And the town of Yorktown itself is a great place to visit because they have a whole Main Street area that's all historic homes, two, three hundred years old. They have a wharf and a port um, on the river that you can kind of take like historic boats and there's museums. It's just a nice place to basically spend a day besides what you would see at the battlefield, which is very close by. So anyway, in early August, Cornwallis arrives in Yorktown and begins to fortify the town. He also fortifies the adjacent Gloucester Point, which is just across the York River. So if you go there today, and if you imagine kind of the battlefield and what it would have looked like in kind of the area, this is southern Virginia, basically. It's very warm, very humid, especially in the summer, and the terrain is fairly flat. Um, there are some ridges and ravines where these little, like, rivers go through the area, and one of them is going to be very important to how the battle plays out. We'll talk about that in a little while. Um, and the ground is sort of this mix of soil and sand to kind of give you an idea of what it would feel like to sort of be there. And a lot of trees, also a lot of farms and fields, and that's kind of what the general area is going to look like right around this town of Yorktown. The battle ends up destroying most of the town. Only about 70 of those 200-plus buildings remained after the battle, and many of the ones that are there have, like, cannon holes in them, and you can kind of see some of that uh, when you go. But the battle sort of destroys what had been a pretty prosperous town, and, never really, and it never really regains its prominence. Uh, today it's more of, like, a tourist attraction than anything else, but still really cool place to visit. So, all right, that's where Cornwallis is. Cornwallis is sort of set and almost stuck in this town of Yorktown. He's trapped. He just doesn't really know it yet. So let's now move north to what's going on around New York City, where General George Washington is. 
This is going to play a very important part in the battle. Of course, this is one of those chess pieces moving into position. So, General George Washington is in command of about 7,000 troops just outside of New York City. And he's there to check British General Clinton's much larger force of about 14,000 troops. His hope, ideally, is to attack and defeat the British forces there and if not end the war, deal a really serious blow. You know, this is the main center of British troops. This is where Washington wants to be, where he wants to attack. His force is a combined force of Americans and French, about 3,000 Americans and about 4,000 French troops. Those French troops, and I'm sure I'm going to butcher this name and many of the other French names I'm about to say, but we're going to give it a try. Those 4,000 French troops are under the command of Jean-Baptiste Donatien de Vimeur, the Comte de Rochambeau. So we're just going to say Rochambeau from now on. Uh, but Rochambeau is on command of about 4,000 French troops. The French had entered the war earlier on the American side after the American victory at the Battle of Saratoga in the fall of 1777. And in 1780, Rochambeau lands with 6,000 French soldiers in Rhode Island, which is fairly close to New York City. Like we said, Washington's primary goal was to attack and defeat Clinton in New York with this sort of like secondary objective of if necessary or I guess if possible, I guess I could go and defeat Cornwallis in Virginia, but Clinton's right here and this is where I want to be. In May of 1781, Washington and Rochambeau meet to discuss strategy. They want to decide what we're going to do here. Um, Rochambeau is really advocating for an attack on Cornwallis in Virginia. He knows the French Navy can help, and he thinks Virginia, for a variety of reasons, is the smarter option. He, of course, ends up being correct, and Washington, around this time, especially after discussions with Rochambeau, starts to see it this way, too. Letters are sent to the French fleet, commanded by Francois Jean-Paul, the Comte de Grasse. Again, probably butchered that name, but de Grasse is in the Caribbean with his French fleet. And he is sort of given the option of what do you think is best as the naval commander? Do you think it's more feasible to attack New York City or to attack the Chesapeake Bay area in Virginia? Privately, Rochambeau sends him another letter urging him to attack Virginia, which, of course, DeGrasse ends up deciding to do. Now, after this meeting with Rochambeau and Washington, Rochambeau moves his troops closer to New York City and puts them under the overall command of Washington. So Washington is now like the overall commander of about 7,000 troops, this combined force of American and French soldiers. On August 14th, Washington and Rochambeau learn of the Grass's decision, which, as we said, is a sail for Virginia and the Chesapeake Bay, not New York City. They say, okay, this is where the French fleet is going. This is where the war is going to be. So they begin preparations to leave. Two days later, on August 16th, they receive the best news that possibly could have reached them. It's a letter from General Lafayette in Virginia that tells them that Cornwallis had moved his forces to the coast of Virginia at Yorktown, and Washington and Rochambeau pretty much immediately realize that Cornwallis is setting himself up for a trap. So here's what Washington has to do. He has to figure out a way to get his soldiers down to Virginia to finish the entrapment of Cornwallis without really letting Clinton and the British forces in New York know of his plans. If he leaves New York City, he's opening up a lot of potential issues. He's opening up himself to attack from the rear. If Clinton leaves New York, he could destroy Washington's forces. Clinton could attack the countryside and retake lots of area around New York City. Washington knows that this move by him is risky, but if done well, could potentially win the war, which is what happened. But he needs to be very, very smart about what he's going to do. So Washington and Rochambeau begin preparations for a move down south to Virginia. At the time, they have about 6,300 troops. Some more troops will link up with them on the way down. But they are going to march south past Philadelphia down to the Chesapeake Bay in Maryland and then get a bunch of troop transports to sail them into Virginia. Many of those transports were French transports brought from the Caribbean under de Grasse, who was already coming up. So how do you deceive the British into thinking you're staying when really you're about to march like literally hundreds of miles south? So 
the deception is very, very impressive. It's kind of reminiscent of all the D-Day deception that's going on by the Allies in World War II. But Washington employs a variety of tactics. Number one, he keeps the destination secret from just about everyone. Only a few officers know their final destination. And then he does a lot of deceitful things, which I love. This is sort of great in war. And Washington was, was this kind of guy and this kind of commander. So, for example, he builds a whole bunch of bread ovens around New York City, around where his troops would have been, to suggest they're going to stay through the winter. He writes a bunch of false orders basically implying that they're going to be staying in the area, and he lets them conveniently fall into British hands. He creates a bunch of orders for buying supplies and food you know, that would last throughout the winter. So all these things to sort of imply that he's going to stay in the general area, and at the same time, he's going to slip out, leave a small force there, like camped out to seem like they're there for the British to see, and they're just going to leave and hope that Clinton doesn't realize they have gone. They leave, and Clinton doesn't learn that they've left for quite a while, and that really helps seal the fate of Cornwallis and results in this giant victory for the Americans. By September 5th, they have reached Philadelphia on their march. That day, September 5th, is going to be a crucial day, as we'll see in just a moment. So now you have two of the chess pieces sort of coming into place. You have Lafayette right outside of where... Cornwallis is. You have Washington coming down with this huge force, making his way to where Cornwallis is. And now you have the third and final piece. This is the French Navy under de Grasse, who we mentioned before. So de Grasse is in charge of 37 ships, 28 of which are called ships of the line, basically battleships. And they are sailing from the Caribbean to the Chesapeake Bay and the general Virginia area. On board are 3,000 French troops, artillery and siege weapons, money for troop payments, and tons of supplies. On August 29th, they reach the Chesapeake and disembark their men, weapons, and supplies, and they then link up with Lafayette's forces nearby. Meanwhile, a smaller force of the French Navy under, again, I'm sure I'll butcher this name, the Admiral Louis-Jacques Comte de Barras, we'll just call him de Barras, was sailing from Rhode Island with eight more ships of the line. And on September 5th, there's the fateful Battle of the Chesapeake. And more than anything, this secures the defeat of Cornwallis. Because what happens is the French fleet defeats the British fleet in the area. The British Navy retreats. They leave the area. And now the French have complete naval superiority along the Chesapeake Bay along the coast of Virginia. This is hugely important because it, A, prevents resupply or reinforcement to Cornwallis from British troops or a fleet that might come in, and it also basically prevents him from being able to escape. He cannot escape by sea. He cannot get reinforced or resupplied by sea. He is really becoming this sitting duck, this cornered chess piece on the board. And all these pieces are closing in slowly but surely, like wolves closing in on their prey. And Cornwallis doesn't really realize what's happening until basically it's too late. So, by the next week, the combined forces of the Americans and French had made it to Maryland, and they take ships, mostly from the Chesapeake Bay, and they go into Virginia. Uh, funny sort of aside, George Washington has his home in Mount Vernon near Washington, D.C. today in northern Virginia. He hadn't been home in six years, so he finally gets to go home. He, like, rides his horse with a bunch of his other officers not taking the ships down, makes it to Mount Vernon, gets to see his home for the first time, basically since the war began. Uh, but from there, he goes to the Williamsburg area to meet up with the other troops, and by September 25th, the entire combined force of the Americans and the French has reached the General Williamsburg area quite close to Yorktown. And on September 28th, they move towards Yorktown, towards Cornwallis, and the stage is set for battle. Now, Cornwallis knows he's outnumbered, and obviously he's fairly concerned. He still has the option to stay put or attack or retreat. None of them are great options. If he stays put, he's opening himself up to a siege, which is what happens. If he attacks, he's outnumbered. He can retreat. He probably could have retreated across the York River to Gloucester Point. He would have been on another peninsula. He could have, like, maybe outmaneuvered his enemy and escaped, you know, through that little hole. But he doesn't. He stays put. And instead, he decides to send a note 
to Clinton in New York asking for help, saying the situation is quite dire. Can you send reinforcements? Clinton says yes. He says, I will send you 5,000 troops and they will leave on October 5th and hopefully arrive a few days after that. So Cornwallis' thinking is probably, well, this is bad, but I guess we have more troops coming. And if those 5,000 troops come, it's going to be a fairly even fight. I'm okay with that. Unfortunately for Cornwallis, and very fortunately for the Americans in the history of the United States, on October 11th, Cornwallis learns that the troops have been delayed and they will not arrive at all during the battle. So here we go. The stage is set. So real quick, before we get into the actual battle itself, let's just talk some stats. Now, these numbers are from the National Park Service. Again, as we said earlier, the numbers kind of differ when you look at the American Revolution. The numbers are not always consistent, but these are pretty clear numbers, pretty good numbers, and we're using the official stats here that the National Park Service uses. So there were about 9,000 total American forces there, 6,000 of which were soldiers, and 3,000 were militia, although those militia were not really engaged. The French have about 8,000 men, and very importantly, those 29 warships, those ships of the line, which are preventing reinforcement for Cornwallis and certainly preventing his escape as well. This is a total of 17,000 total troops for the combined American and French force under George Washington. They also, very importantly, have 131 artillery pieces, and many of these cannons are siege guns, mortars, howitzers, siege cannons. Their effective range is about 1,000 yards. Now, when we think of cannons, we think of, oh, they're just going to attack a castle or a fort or earthworks like this, but you really need heavy cannon, these mortars and howitzers and siege cannons, to do that effectively. And luckily for the Americans, most of their artillery pieces are these large cannons. The British, as we'll see, have fewer. And the British had 8,300 men, including many German Hessian troops, which we'll talk about in just a second. And they had 244 pieces of artillery, so many more than the Americans and French. However, most of those were light artillery. They were really field guns, not great at destroying earthworks, for example, which, as we're going to see, is extremely important to the course of the battle. The casualty rates really tell the story, and if you knew nothing else about the casualties on both sides, you'd pretty much know exactly what happened. The Americans and French have a combined 88 killed and 301 wounded. The British, on the other hand, have about 300 killed and about 500 wounded, and then 7,500 captured. That is virtually their entire force. And again, that really tells the entire story. Now, one interesting note here, there were actually thousands of German troops fighting on both sides of the battle. Many were the famous Hessian mercenaries that were fighting for the British. You see them pop up throughout the war. And others were part of the French army, so they're actually Germans fighting for the French army as well. So it's kind of this crazy scene where you're fighting in the New World in North America, the colonies, the United States, whatever you want to call it, and there's Americans and British and French and Germans all fighting in this new world, this new land across the Atlantic Ocean from Europe. Pretty crazy to think about. Okay, so let's talk about the battle itself. So what happens? Well, here's where we start. So Cornwallis has stationed his 8,300 men in the town of Yorktown, and then he builds these trench lines, these earthworks surrounding the town with 10 redoubts, which are just earthen forts, outside of the lines. So large trench lines around a town with about 10 forts called redoubts outside his line. Now, he does station some men across the York River to the north, but it's a very small force, and the vast majority of his troops are in or around Yorktown. Now, picture this on a map for a second. If you don't have one with you, I'll try to paint the scene. The York River runs northwest to southeast. So if you look at a map, what you usually see is this like diagonal line of the York River flowing from the top left of your map to the bottom right, with the town of Yorktown and Cornwallis' lines around it on the northern edge of that river, right by the edge of the river on the top or top right of the map. So that's what you can imagine. Now, the terrain is also going to play an extremely important role in the battle because, in part, there's this creek called the Yorktown Creek that creates a fairly deep ravine and a great natural defensive feature that's about a mile or two west of the town of Yorktown and then runs slightly to the south of the town. 
So basically, there's the town of Yorktown. To the north is this giant York River. I've been there. You can see it. It's very, very wide. It's not like you can swim across it. And then you have this creek with this large ravine that runs to the west and slowly to the south of town. So if you're Washington trying to lay siege to Yorktown, you're kind of bottlenecked. There's only this one open space of land where you can really bring your troops in. And it's this space a half mile, maybe a mile wide or so in some points in between the York River to the north and to the east, Washington's right, and that ravine in the west. Now, Cornwallis obviously knows this too. He's pretty sure that if Washington's going to bring his troops up, this is where he's going to come. So when you visit the battlefield today, or if you look on a map on how the defensive works were created, there's a lot of focus on this sort of open space to Cornwallis's south and east in between this ravine and the York River. So, for example, there's this horn that sticks out of the trench lines towards this open space where Washington would be. And then also, Cornwallis puts two of those readouts, some of the largest ones, those forts, right in that space. And those two readouts, we'll see, will be very, very important to the battle later on. And again, if you go there and visit it, you can really see all that there. It's like you're watching the battle unfold around you. All right, so anyway, so it's September 28th. And the American and French troops are marching to Yorktown from Williamsburg, where they were stationed. You have the French force under Rochambeau, and he arrives and sets up camp about two miles to the west and then the south of town. And then the Americans come, and they set up their camp to the south and east of town. They are completely surrounding the town of Yorktown. Washington, as the overall commander, sets up his headquarters in between the American and French lines. Now, let's just talk for a quick minute here about what was going through Washington's head and the siege tactics he was about to employ. So imagine you're Washington. Like, what is your goal here? Well, your goal is to defeat, hopefully capture, this entirety of Cornwallis's force, which, of course, is what he does. And how do you do that? Well, you have sort of two options. Either you just sort of sit there and wait it out and let Cornwallis slowly starve or use up his supplies and have to either make a break for it or just surrender. Remember, Cornwallis has that river behind him and then all the French fleet there. Escape is possible, but probably pretty difficult. Or you can push your advance and attack, which is exactly what Washington does. So he is going to take the battle to Cornwallis. The first shots of the battle are fired on September 29th, and this is as Washington is moving his troops closer to town. Now, there are very few casualties, but this is technically the first shots of the battle. Cornwallis, seeing this much larger force come towards him, uh, and is pretty scared, as you would probably imagine, pulls back his troops to bring them all within the earthworks he's created around the town, except for three key places. Readout number nine, Readout number 10, and this small fort just to the west of town called the Fusiliers Readout. All his other forces, though, are within those trench lines. Now, you can go to all those places. Fusiliers Readout is still there. So are those two readouts, 9 and 10. Now, it's likely he did this because he had pretty much just received word from Clinton in New York that 5,000 British troops would soon be on their way. So his goal basically is let's hold out Let's hold my position until I get reinforcements, which is not that crazy of a thing to do, right? You have this large force, double your size, about to attack. But if you can get 5,000 reinforcements, the troop strengths are fairly equal. And now you're playing on much more equal terms. And that's what Cornwallis was hoping for. Now, it does not happen uh, to basically Cornwallis's doom and the Americans' eventual victory. But that's what Cornwallis is hoping for. So over the course of the next week or so, there's intermittent bombardment and artillery fire on both sides as Washington's forces set in and prepare for this siege. So Washington's troops are attacking some of the British lines and shooting into Yorktown. They're pretty far away, but they can still kind of hit, and the British are doing the same. Now, it takes a long time to prepare for a siege. You've got to get your camp ready. You also have to build and get ready a lot of the supplies needed for the siege, needed for what we're going to see is the eventual creation of these earthworks, these trench lines that they're going to use as the place of attack for Yorktown. Now, the first real movement is on the night of October 6th. 
and under the cover of darkness, American and French troops begin to construct what's called the First Parallel. This is a deep trench line that could house artillery and troops and would eventually stretch 2,000 yards from the edge of that ravine we talked about to the west all the way east to the York River. Now, the line here is about a half mile away from the British line, and this is just within that effective range of Washington's large siege weapons. So he knows if he puts his cannons right there, they're going to be able to attack the British lines pretty successfully. Washington is really playing by the book here and doing everything right. Washington ceremoniously strikes the first blow to create the trench. He's got like a pickaxe and... It's kind of a running theme here with Washington. He'll do this again later on in the battle. Uh, But somehow the British sentries are completely unaware that this trench has started to become built. And they wake up the next day, basically, on October 7th and see, oh my God, the Americans and French have built this huge trench. Now, how they miss this, I have no idea, but this is not the first time they'll be caught completely unaware of something like this happening during this battle. Now, the French get the west half, the left side of this trench, this first parallel, while the Americans get the east or the right side. Now, it takes a few days to finish building this trench line, but on October 9th, artillery fire begins. The French open up first, but Washington ceremoniously shoots off the first shot of the American artillery. Again, he's really making himself known. He knows he's going to be in the history books. He wants to do it his way. Now, shelling continues, and it ends up destroying much of the town, the British defenses, and even some of the very few British ships that Cornwallis had nearby. So these cannon, these siege artillery that the Americans and French had were doing their job quite early on and quite effectively. Now, it's also around this time that Cornwallis learns that the British reinforcements who were supposed to come were late in leaving, and they're not even going to leave New York City until October 12th. So they are way delayed, and at this point, I think it's pretty much clear to Cornwallis that he knows he's kind of done, barring some kind of miracle. Now, he's not just going to surrender right here. He's going to fight it out, sort of, um, but he knows it's going to be very, very difficult to have any kind of victory here. So let's talk for a second about what it's like to visit. So what's really cool is you can go and see that first parallel. It's very well preserved, and there's a bunch of areas where you can walk on the siege lines, on these earthworks. They're restored, but they still would have been there even if they hadn't been. And you can see a lot of the cannons placed. And from that first parallel, you can see out to what we'll talk about in a moment is a second parallel. And you can even see those readouts in the distance and the rest of the battlefield further ahead. So really cool to go there and experience that. You really see exactly what the soldiers would have been looking at at the time of the battle. So what happens next? Well, it's the night of October 11th. And once again, secretly under the cover of darkness, the American and French troops begin building a second and closer siege line. This line is only about a quarter mile from the British line. It becomes called the second parallel. And it is close enough to devastate the town of Yorktown and all the British troops there. Somehow, again, the British did not even know they were building it. They wake up to first light on October 12th and see, oh my God, the Americans and French are a quarter mile away. I don't know what Cornwallis was doing or what the sentries or scouts were doing, but it was pretty abysmal. And this really seals the fate, essentially, of the British forces. Now, this line extends from the ravine that we talked about on the west east about halfway across the battlefield, but it can't get all the way across the battlefield because of those readouts, those forts, readouts 9 and 10. And these become really the key feature of the battlefield, the only actual real hand-to-hand fighting that we're going to see. And if you want to call this a battle as opposed to a siege, this is where the fighting, where the battling is taking place. These are really the last remaining obstacles against what was pretty much sure to be an American and French victory. So you have this shelling of the town, you have Washington employing all these siege tactics, and once you take these last two readouts, the battle's basically going to be over. And again, to use the chess analogy, it's kind of like you know the king's about to be taken, but you have to do a few last moves to get to it, and the king on the other side knows he's probably about to lose, but you're not just going to give up and surrender, you want to play it out. That's kind of what's happening here with Cornwallis and Washington. So we get to the taking of readouts 9 and 10, which is going to take place on the night of October 14th. 
And then Washington's not going to just stop being a good commander, so he creates a diversion, and he acts like he's going to do a full frontal assault attack on the entire British force. This is to kind of scare the British forces and make sure that the British aren't completely uh, focusing their energy on these forward readouts. And then what he does is commands his troops to silently, with bayonets fixed, take readouts number 9 and 10. So let's talk about these two readouts. Readout number 9 is about a quarter mile inland. It's defended by 120 men, and the French are tasked with attacking it, and they're going to send 400 men to do so. Readout number 10, which is just on the water's edge, is defended by 70 men, and the Americans under Lafayette's command, a Frenchman commanding the Americans, are tasked with attacking, and it's Alexander Hamilton who's going to be in charge of the assault. I love this like moment in history, this moment in this battle. It's Alexander Hamilton under the command of the Marquis de Lafayette, under the command of General George Washington, in the last major battle of the American Revolution at the last point of fighting in the war. Very cool. It's really history kind of speaking forward here. So what are these readouts like? I think this is really interesting to talk about for a minute here because when you go to the battlefield, you can totally see them. They have been very, very well preserved and then rebuilt. And you imagine like what's a fort like? Are you imagining some medieval fort here? No. What we're talking about here are fairly small earthen forts. So I walked it out. I was there. It's about 120 feet wide. And these readouts are earthen. And there's a trench dug around it. It's about head deep, so if you jumped in this trench, your head would be at ground level. And then there's this large earthen wall, about 6 to 10 feet higher than ground level itself. And then these huge wooden spikes called abatis sticking straight up and out. So imagine if you're going to storm this, what you would need to do is jump in a trench, again head deep, climb up this wall, up or around or over these large wooden spikes, then climb another 6 or maybe even 10 feet to the top of the wall where you would then be met by the defenders inside. So this is no easy feat, and again going there you can kind of like visualize it and see exactly how this would have happened. but. That is the task that the Americans and French have, and because of their pretty much overwhelming numerical superiority, it's kind of a done deal that they're going to capture it, but they still need to actually do so. So readout number 9 is attacked, it's captured in about 30 minutes, and readout number 10 is attacked and captured in about 10 minutes. Now readout number 9, if you go, is basically perfectly preserved and rebuilt. Weedout number 10, on the other hand, is almost completely collapsed. It has eroded into the York River. It's only a small corner of the readout is even still there. The rest of it has eroded into the York River. Now, at this point, the battle is all but over. Washington extends his trench lines to the York River. He puts all of his siege guns on that second parallel, and they begin pummeling and attacking the British into submission. The British here at this point are pretty desperate. Everything kind of that could have gone wrong for Cornwallis and his men had. So, for example, they had to slaughter all their horses for food. They apparently had many, as possibly as many as half of their troops sick with malaria. The reinforcements hadn't come. The French fleet was blocking their escape by sea. There wasn't really much else they could do. Um, Cornwallis is going to try a couple things that are going to completely fail, uh, but he's pretty much done, and he really knows it. So what does he try? Well, on October 15th, He desperately sends his troops out to attack the French line. They try to destroy some of the French siege guns. They fail, and within a few hours, the French are able to fix them. And then the next day, on October 16th, poor Cornwallis tries to escape across that York River. But after the first set of boats go across, a giant storm rolls in, and it prevents any of the rest of the British from escaping. So there you go. That's pretty much it. Cornwallis and his men know it's essentially over. So Cornwallis meets with his officers. They agree it is time to surrender. On October 17th, the white flag of surrender appears and truce talks begin. So on October 18th, envoys from all sides meet at the Moore House, which is about a mile or so east of the battlefield, and they're there to negotiate the surrender. Now you can visit the Moore House today. It's pretty cool. It's very well preserved. Unfortunately, you couldn't go in. I visited at the tail end of COVID here, but just going there, you sort of get this like real sense of history. It's almost like Appomattox Courthouse. Like this is the spot, the house 
where the final surrender of the British took place. Now, the war wasn't officially over yet. We'll talk about that in a minute. But this is the last surrender of any military force, really, in North America. And this is the battle that's basically going to end the Revolutionary War. Now, by the afternoon, the surrender is finalized, and American and French troops enter the British siege lines. On October 19th, we have the final formal surrender. What you have is these thousands of British troops, all carrying their arms at their side, are walking about a mile behind the battle lines to what is called Surrender Field. Now, Cornwallis, claiming he's too sick to attend, sends his second-in-command, the Brigadier General Charles O'Hara, to surrender for him. I mean, that's pretty insane right there. The, the leading commander claims he's too sick to attend. He doesn't go. He sends another guy in his place. Cowardly, he's sick, whatever you want to call it, uh, but he doesn't go there. Now, this moment actually, to me, creates one of the most hilarious moments of the Revolutionary War and certainly this battle. Uh, it's the story of poor O'Hara trying to surrender. So surrendering for O'Hara is going to be very hard. He has his sword and he's going to formally surrender his sword. It's kind of the symbolic surrender here in this gentlemanly conflict. So he goes up to Rochambeau. He tries to surrender to Rochambeau. Rochambeau says, no, 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 no. I'm pointing you over to Washington. Go surrender to him. O'Hara walks over to Washington, tries to surrender to Washington, who is very offended. How dare this second-in-command surrender to me, the overall commander? And he says, no, I'm pointing you over to surrender to my own second-in-command, Benjamin Lincoln. So you have O'Hara, like, bopping around from guy to guy, trying to surrender, just trying to get this over with. And he does finally surrender to Washington's second-in-command, Benjamin Lincoln. Um, this is actually depicted on a very famous painting, maybe the most famous painting of the Revolutionary War. It's called The Surrender of Lord Cornwallis. It's displayed prominently in the U.S. Capitol Rotunda, but it doesn't actually show Cornwallis surrendering. What it shows is Lincoln and O'Hara and the surrender that takes place with, like, Washington in the background watching from his horse. Um, this is a pretty interesting moment here in history. Now, what was the actual surrender like for the troops? Well, what's really great here and what's so nice about visiting the battlefield is you can see exactly how all of Cornwallis's seven or 8,000 men are going to surrender. What they do is they march down this path, and the path is lined on one side by French troops and on the other side by American troops, and they're going to walk down this path to this big open field called Surrender Field and lay down their arms. Now, that path is still there. And that big field is still there, too. So you can really see all this happening in front of you. And what happens is you get all the British troops walking along, and they reach Surrender Field, and they throw down their arms. Apparently, a lot of them literally threw them down and broke them. Um, but they throw down their arms. And you also have thousands of American civilians watching this all take place. And I just think about that for a moment, especially after visiting. The thousands of now Americans who had witnessed this revolutionary war and now were seeing in front of them the surrender, the final surrender of British troops during the war. Just kind of an amazing moment in history. You kind of feel the ghosts around you as you're there. What's also nice about visiting that spot is they have a pretty good information section and they also have a bunch of the cannons that had been surrendered by the British, which are displayed like as trophies. So again, you can walk this whole field and this whole area and then see the trophies of war, the final surrendered artillery of the British. So the battle at this point is over. What happens next? Well, apparently there's a big dinner with a bunch of the officers from both sides. Again, you think of like gentlemanly conflict. This is very different than war would happen today. But there's a big dinner that takes place. A few days later, on October 24th, the British fleet finally arrives with those 5,000 soldiers. Now, they learn of the news of the surrender of Cornwallis, and they pick up some loyalists who had escaped before the battle ended. They see the French fleet still in the area, and they decide to return back to New York City. George Washington sends an envoy to Philadelphia to deliver the news of this great victory. Uh, the poor envoy gets sick on the way, on the ship up, uh, but he does manage to reach Congress there. And after he delivers the news to Philadelphia, the city celebrates for days. Now, word finally gets to Great Britain, of course, and the British Prime Minister, Lord North, upon hearing the news, apparently famously exclaimed, Oh God, it's all over. And it certainly was. 
Um, a few months later, he resigns. On October 29th, Congress declares a victory monument to be built to commemorate this great victory, but construction doesn't even start until 1881, 100 years later, and it's not completed until 1884. They can still visit that today. It's pretty interesting to see. After the battle, Washington then moves his army back to New York, and he doesn't really think the war is over, which was kind of the general attitude at the time, because Clinton still had these 14,000 or so men stationed in New York City. So Washington brings his troops up, he positions them across from Clinton's to kind of check his force there, but of course there's not really any fighting at all after that. The winter goes by, and in March of 1782, the British Parliament agrees to, quote, cease hostilities, and they begin work on a peace treaty. Now, this peace treaty takes a very long time to actually finally hammer out and sign, and on September 3rd, 1783, well over a year later, they finally sign the Treaty of Paris. The Treaty of Paris recognizes the United States as a completely independent nation. It gives it generous new borders, and it is the end of the war. It has created this new democracy, the United States of America, from the monarchy of Great Britain. So if you visit today, there's a lot to talk about here. Um, I'll be as succinct as I can. But I loved going to Yorktown, and I definitely loved visiting the battlefield there. Let's start with the battlefield. The battlefield itself is quite well-preserved, I would say, and it's pretty incredible to go somewhere where a large battle took place 250 years ago and still be able to see, like, all the earthworks and all the trench lines and be able to really visualize what would have been happening during this all-important battle in 1781. So, for example, you can walk to where the first parallel began, and you can see the trenches. You can see the six-feet-high walls with a trench on, on the other side and another little wall. That's how they were building a lot of their trenches. You can see the spaces in between the trenches where they would have put their cannons. Um, not all of the trench line is there, but most of it is. Not all of it's going to be open to visitors, but a good enough amount of it is that you can really see the entire battlefield. There's some cool spots there to go to, and what you can do then is walk from the first parallel a few hundred yards forward to the second parallel, and the second parallel I think is even more well-preserved, and you can see the line going like hundreds of yards east and hundreds of yards west, and from there you can see the readouts. From there you can barely kind of make out in the distance um, Yorktown, and you can definitely see the British lines. The horn we talked about earlier, the British horn, which is kind of this earthwork sticking out towards the American lines, is there, and you can visit that. Um, so it's pretty cool kind of seeing like parallel one, the first parallel, parallel two, the second parallel, and then from there you can even walk to where the British line would have been. As we said, those readouts, readouts 9 and 10, are still there, and you can really just kind of walk that whole battlefield if you want to spend an hour or so looking at all those lines and kind of like walking from... Siege Line 1, Siege Line 2, Readouts, Yorktown. You can do all that. So you really feel like you're living in history when you're there. Uh, what's interesting to me, we didn't talk much about this, but there was also a fairly small-scale but important Civil War battle at Yorktown. And smack dab in the middle of the first parallel, in between the first parallel and the second parallel, is a fairly large Civil War cemetery. <laughs> so it's this like crazy juxtaposition of history and then the Civil War versus the Revolution. Um, and it kind of speaks to just the overwhelming history that's been in the area for many, many hundreds of years. So what's really cool about the park itself is they designed it into two separate driving tours with a visitor center sort of at the beginning. Uh, now, I went really at the tail end of COVID here, and the visitor center was basically closed. Uh, they have some exhibits that are there that were closed, but you can walk in and talk to the park rangers and get some information. I got two different park service maps. Uh, the original map, which is really describes very well the Battle of Yorktown, is out of service, so I had to like ask for it specifically. It gives a lot more information than the newer one. The newer one describes the entire area, Yorktown, Williamsburg, and Jamestown, but still really good information. So from the visitor center, you can take the first driving tour and this is like the battlefield driving tour now the battlefield driving tour and i'm going to open up 
my park service map right now. The Battlefield Driving Tour, you can do in an hour or two. If you really want to spend a lot of time and see everything, you can probably spend about two and a half, maybe three hours doing it. I did it in probably about an hour and a half. It goes from the Visitor Center, which is just inside the British lines, out to the American lines and the French lines, and then around sort of the entire battlefield. So it starts at the Visitor Center, then you get to the first parallel, uh, where there's also a pretty impressive Grand French battery. There's some cannons there, too, that you can kind of see and visualize how the fighting would have taken place. And then takes you forward to the second line, the second parallel. And again, from there, you can really see everything. From there, it takes you to readouts 9 and 10, then to the Moore House, which, like I said, is still standing and quite impressive, and then around all the way back, back where the Americans had been encamped, to Surrender Field. And Surrender Field is, a, like I said, a really, really cool place to visit. Highly recommend doing that. Now, there is then a second driving tour. Now, I don't recommend that you do this unless you really want to see it all and you have the time. I did it. It wasn't quite worth it, but it's still interesting to do. The second tour, the second driving tour is called the Encampment Tour. And this takes you on a tour of all the places that the Americans and French were camped out. Now, I wasn't sure what to expect. Um, The reality is you shouldn't expect much if you go. Basically, you drive and you see, oh, like this is where the American camp was. Oh, this is where the artillery are held. This is where a field hospital was. But there's nothing there. It's just trees and open field. There is a spot all the way in back where you can go to General Washington's headquarters. I was like, oh, that's cool. I can see his headquarters. There's nothing there. It's just an open spot of grass where there's a plaque saying this is where Washington's tent was. So not the greatest experience, but still cool to kind of see it and walk it and feel it. Uh, From there, it takes you up to the French encampment area. Again, I was hoping there'd be some like living history there or tents or some kind of recreations. There was basically nothing except for a bunch of plaques on the side of the road. Uh, There was, however, the French cemetery. There is like a large cross that's there where they believe that about 50 French troops were buried. So that's pretty cool to check out. What I actually thought was the most interesting part of that tour, and you can easily just go to this on its own, it's very close to Yorktown itself, you can drive sort of separately to it, is something called the Untouched Readout. Now, the Untouched Readout is one of those 10 forts that the British had made as they were waiting for the Americans and the French to come. It's fairly small, but what's cool about this is it is literally untouched. It hasn't been worked on or restored or anything in 250 years. So you can see what 250 years, I guess really 240 years, regardless, you can see what that amount of time can do to the history around us. You can walk over to this untouched readout. You can see, oh, here's where the trench was. Oh, here's where the parapet was. Here's the wall. But a lot of it has been kind of filled in over the natural course of time. But it is still cool to kind of walk on top of that and say, this is what 240 some odd years are going to do to the history around us. Um, you also can see some of the other British lines, and you can go to the Facilier's Readout to the west of Yorktown. Um, I didn't really go there, but it is there, and it is worth a visit if you'd like to see it. So the cost, I paid $15 to get in. It differs a bit uh, depending on car and how many people go, but I think it was definitely worth it. There were a few things closed, like I said. Uh, the Moore House was closed, and a lot of the Visitor Center was closed. But what's really cool is that the town of Yorktown itself is its own, like, really unique historical experience. There is a lot of the old original downtown still there. Of the 200-plus buildings that were there during the war, 70 survived, and there's at least a couple dozen that are still there. So they've created this, like, great little walking tour, again, kind of like a mini Williamsburg that is there and absolutely worth checking out. Probably the most famous building there is called the Nelson House. Uh, We won't get too much into Nelson here, but suffice to say, he was a very important figure in the revolution, and so was his family. And I've heard stories that maybe Cornwallis actually even stayed in the Nelson house. Uh, But if you go to the Nelson house, you can tour it. And there is a spot where cannon shells had hit the house, and you can see kind of the um, destruction a little bit in the wall that are from those cannon shells. There's lots of other history there. There's tons of museums. There's the American Revolution Museum of Yorktown, which is probably the best 
American Revolution Museum in the United States. I didn't go, but it has great reviews, and I've heard great things about it. And then you can go to Yorktown itself and just spend the day there. You can tour around. You can get lunch. You can take like a little boat, um, a a colonial or Revolutionary War era sailboat, and take that around. So there's really a lot to do. And um, it's a great experience. And if you go there, you can go not just to Yorktown and the battlefield, but you can also go to Williamsburg and Jamestown, which sure, maybe I'll do a whole episode about them later on, but they're their own unique experiences. Um, as I mentioned, there is that Victory Monument, which was finally finished in 1884. It's worth checking out, but it's nothing particularly special. It is right near that old historic downtown in Yorktown, very close to the visitor center of the Yorktown battlefield. So that is Yorktown. That is the Battle of Yorktown. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you enjoy if you ever get the chance to go and visit. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Educator Podcast, Walking History. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share to help support the show and to get updates on each new episode as it comes out. To find more episodes and information about the Educator Podcast, including the Perspectives and How-To series, visit theeducatorpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts from. I've been your host, Matt Douglas. To find more information about me and my work, please visit lifecoachingsd.com or follow Life Coaching SD on Instagram. This episode was recorded on June 16th, 2021, and all information is accurate to the best of my knowledge. Thanks for listening.